This podcast is now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Please leave a written review on whatever app you get this podcast from. Spoiler alert! When this podcast talks about Game of Thrones on HBO, it talks in the context of the most recently aired episode. And when it talks A Song of Ice and Fire books, it talks in the context of the most recently released book by George R. R. Martin. You've been warned. Who can it be knocking at my door? Yes, Scott Bradley's postmodern jukebox are coming at you on a Monday. This one's featuring Sarah Nimitz performing their version of Minute Works. Who can it be now? That's in celebration of us meeting even more cast members, and we've only just begun meeting characters in this series, but we get to meet all of the small council in this episode, and all of the information about Scott Bradley's postmodern jukebox can be found in the show notes. And welcome once again to Matt's audio blog, Game of Thrones Style. I'm Matt, naturally. And remember that you can contact me by emailing mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. That's M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com. Or if you just want to tweet me, it's at Matt's G-O-T blog. That's at M-A-T-T-S G-O-T blog. And you can find links to everything that I do or have done in the past, really, including all back episodes of this podcast at mattsaudioblog.com. M-A-T-T-S audioblog.com. Remember, I spell my name with two T's. Today we're going to be covering Season 1, Episode 3, Lord Snow. It was written by the showrunners David Benioff and Dan Weiss. It was directed by Brian Kirk. And remember that if you have any feedback for me regarding any episode in Season 1, then you need to get that into me by June 2nd of 2018 in order to be included in our feedback podcast, which will come up uh, just a couple days after that deadline. That way I can be current with everybody's feedback and I can still pre-record some of these watching episodes in order to fit my schedule. And uh, thank you all so much for sticking with me. There's one thing that I ask because I will never monetize this podcast, but I will ask that you help me stay more noticeable among other Game of Thrones podcasts simply by whatever app that you're using in order to listen to this podcast, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a written review at that podcast app as well for this podcast. That's what's going to help me stay more noticeable. I looked right before we started recording these episodes, and I couldn't even find me in the limited search. I need more reviews in order to at least make, I I don't know what the top, do they do 80? Do they do a little bit more than 80? Do they do 100? Uh, Whatever the number is, I'm not in there. So help me get in there by leaving me a written review. Good or bad, uh, I am not particular. I'm not one to make your opinion for you. I'm not going to tell you to get bleeped if you want to say this guy sucks. If you do want to say that, then feel free to give me a a, a pointer or two as to how you think I could make the show better. Uh, During that feedback podcast that we'll have shortly after June 2nd, midnight, June 2nd, your time, wherever you are in the world, that's your deadline. But after we have our feedback, I'll also be including some news uh, regarding Season 8 or things to come in the Game of Thrones world. So it won't be just your feedback. 
you get a little bonus content in there as well. In the meantime, I think that's all I have to say about the podcast. Once again, Matt's audio blog at gmail.com, Matt's GOT blog on Twitter, Matt's audioblog.com is the website. Let's get into this episode. Lord Snow, Season 1, Episode 3. Again, written by Benioff and Weiss, directed by Brian Kirk. As you know, we're doing this on a rewatch level. We're, we're rewatching the series, and that's taking into context everything that we've seen already. But from time to time, when I watch these things, I, I do want to remind everybody that this is a TV show. It's not a puzzle. I mean, yes, things can be entertaining and they can be intellectually stimulating at the same time. But you do have to feel something. And I want to keep reminding you people that Game of Thrones actually does a pretty good job of making you feel stuff as well as giving you a springboard to theorize about. Or as some like to do, recklessly guess about. But nonetheless... Uh, some some things on the surface. There was one moment in this particular episode, Lord Snow, that really just made me emotional. Now I, I'm I'm a softy anyway. I mean I have a, a weak heart <laughs> in respect that I'll be the first guy in any room of men to cry uh, when a scene isn't emotional, and I don't apologize for that. I you know I like to feel things, and. Actually, with this scene that, that made me well up a little bit when I watched it this time, what happened with the two of these people being Ned and Kat when they were saying goodbye to each other for the last time? I mean, this is only the third episode, and they're saying goodbye to each other for the last time. We barely know these people, and so it's hard maybe to feel as much when we're seeing it for the first time. But now, now that we know what happens to Ned, and then later on, a couple years later to Cap, makes it very emotional. Subsequently, you think about how that extends through a whole bunch of scenes. And it made me think about the music that was underneath this, which will be part of my musical analysis for this particular episode. Because when I heard the music, I thought, oh, wow, it's so great. Um, and I'll get into that, like I said, a little later. I just wanted to tease that. But what really made me feel emotional about this was, uh, and I, I know it had been brought up times before when I've discussed it with other fans. So it's not like it's a new concept, but it really hurt me deeply. And I, I don't know what kind of direction that Michelle or Sean were given in this particular scene. But it almost seems like, you know, there's something in their emotions that just makes you feel like it is going to be the last time, even if you were just watching it for the first time. There, there's something inevitably, there, there, there's something inevitably sad about what's going on there between the two of them. I found it really disturbing in one way and just really super emotional in another way. And it's just, you know, it's making me dread the Baylor episode. It's making me dread the Reigns of Castamere episode. It's making me dread everything, you know, in a way. Uh, and how pointless this all is. And all because as they're talking about this stuff, Catelyn is insistent on believing Littlefinger. And, and it's Littlefinger who is... You know, just capitalizing on lying to the two of them to create a further rift between the Lannisters and the Starks that 
really shouldn't be there. Okay, granted, there should be a, a rift between the Lannisters and the Starks because Bran found out Jamie and Cersei's secret, and as a result, Jamie threw Bran out a window. That's what there needs to be a thing about. I, I mean, Littlefinger couldn't have possibly suspected that that was going to happen, so he had Lysa not only kill John Aaron, probably so that he could eventually take control of the Eyrie, but he also had her write Catelyn in order to create this divide between the Lannisters and the Starks. To, to what end? In a hope that there would be a war and maybe somehow Ned would die and somehow Catelyn would come to Littlefinger? I mean, we'll get to more into that in, in the question part, I guess, as well. But, yeah, the, and this is just a surfacey thing. I, I, this is just me just shaking my fist at the sky because I'm so angry that this is the last time Ned and Kat will see each other and how lovely it was and how, how lovely those two actors did at making you feel like that theirs was a love that had been a rock in the North for a long time. Despite, you know, Littlefinger's talking to Ned earlier about how Ned's brother Brandon had given him a, a, a scar from Naval the Collarbone, right? Um, and the mention of the brother itself. I mean, some, there's something from the past. You, you already just have a little hint of something that we get in a lot of, like, Blu-ray extras and things like that about the history of Littlefinger. Uh, he had courted. Catelyn when he was young and Brandon had basically cut him uh, that would be Ned's older brother who was the same older brother if you know the blue race who ended up dying uh, at the hands of the Mad King because the Mad King had strung up Ned and Brandon's father and uh, had started to burn him and had tied some kind of rope around Brandon's neck uh, so that as he tried to get to his father to free him, it would strangle him. It, it's just very bizarre, torturous, silly, Mad King kind of stuff, right? Um, and I don't know that we ever get that full story in the show itself, but we do get it in the Blu-ray extras. So uh, be sure to pay attention to those. It, it's worth it to buy those extras or to at least seek them out on YouTube. You can usually find most of the extras on YouTube if that's the route you want to go. I'm not encouraging you to pirate or anything like that, but I am encouraging you to do the research because there's nothing worse. If you're going to if you're going to form theories out there, folks, do all of the research, then form the theory. Don't just throw stuff out there to see what sticks to the wall. Uh, that would be my word of advice. Oh, man, I'm just like going off. I, I need to stop that. Um. One other surfacey thing before we even get to my three big things, and and that's there's a lot of mother themes in this particular episode. It's kind of weird. It's entitled Lord Snow, and that's Jon Snow who doesn't know who his mother is, wants to know who his mother is. So that's kind of weird, even though Jon's mother doesn't really even come up in this particular episode for Jon. Um, then you have Daenerys learning that she's going to be having a baby. She is a mother-to-be. Um, and you have Cersei mothering and mentoring her son, Joffrey. So with all of that going on, there's, there's this kind of mother thing. Hell, let's even throw in Ned 
saying that uh, war is basically easier than having daughters. And that's a problem of Catelyn not being able to be there for Arya and Sansa, right? I mean, and Catelyn even expressing how she wishes she could see Arya and Sansa and Ned having to not allow her to do that, which brings me back to that really emotional goodbye. And I'm going to stop talking about that. Let's go on to three big things. Three big things. Glaring points in the episode for me. Uh, That's what these three big things are. And uh, first, I'm going to start with Daenerys. Obviously, she is now pregnant. This helps solidify her love with Drogo in a way that now that she is bearing one of his children, he makes certain that anything that she wants, she's going to get. We see that happen time and time again. Uh, It ends up basically costing him his life, giving her things that really maybe she doesn't have business asking for from that worldview's perspective. Not that I'm saying that women don't have the right to ask that there not be slaves. I think that women have a perfect right to do that, but not necessarily in that world. They don't. At least she's breaking molds. And this is a queen who is now taking control in the bedroom. And she's starting to say things, as Jorah says in this episode, she's starting to act like a Khaleesi and a queen. Or she's starting to act like a queen. And actually, it's Danny who corrects him in saying that she's acting like a Khaleesi. And she's seeing how the slaves are being treated. And uh, her stories that she's heard up to this point from Jorah about slavery and such, you can see how this instills her will to end slavery. We see it beginning at the end of this particular season when she tells Drogo that he can't take all of these women as slaves or that his blood riders can't take all of these women as slaves. She goes on to Karth. And then, of course, she goes to Slaver's Bay and she completely abolishes slavery uh, as best she can there. So all of these seeds are being laid very early on and you see how they blossom into much bigger things. But uh, yeah, Daenerys and Queen are being mentioned together for the first time and, of course, won't be for the last time. And I know that there are people in the camp who want to believe that Daenerys will become queen of the Seven Kingdoms someday. Now we have Jon, who is actually would be a rival for her ascension to that throne. And <laughs> the fact that they're lovers, that, I mean, obviously complicates a whole lot of things. Um, but uh, maybe I should just throw it out there. Who do you think would be a better leader, Daenerys or Jon? You know, send an email to Matt's audio blog at gmail.com, M-A-T-T-S audio blog at gmail.com, or you can tweet at Matt's G-O-T blog. My second big thing is that Arya's already got a tide of vengeance, which started in the last episode over Micah the Butcher's Boy. Now the second shoe drops. Her ties to Bravos begins. Everything is leading from very early on. Once again, I love how all of these seeds are being planted very early on. And Arya's journey towards Bravos begins through Sirio Pharrell, who is the first sword of the Sea Lord of Bravos. And of course, we know that Arya ends up at Bravos in the House of Black and White. 
in order to become trained as a faceless person. In fact, she interacts with Jock and Hagar in season two, and that's what leads her directly to that decision. But a lot of her dark father figures, although I don't know that I'd necessarily call Cereal Pharrell a dark father figure, but he is teaching her swordplay. I mean, he is teaching her the water dance, which, of course, becomes Arya's call move. And we finally see that as she's struggling here with learning the water dance, think of how different that is to, than to where she is in season seven when her and Brienne face off. And she uses the water dance there in order to basically hold her own with Brienne. Now, as she continued to practice it before she got to Bravos which is the big tie here of Cereal Pharrell. Before she got to Bravos, even when she was practicing her water dancing, it still didn't quite work all of the time. I mean, she managed to uh, stab one of the guys from season two when she was with the Hound. But anytime she tried to water dance with the Hound, he just knocked her on her butt. So it wasn't really working to her favor there, but it does work to her favor later on, as we see. It works with the Waif at the end of season six, and it works with Brienne in season seven. So her, her foreshadowing is already cemented. And we're only on episode three. She's got the vengeance. She's learning how to use a sword. She's learning how to use a sword from some dude from Bravos. It's over. Arya is on the road to becoming a cold-blooded murderer. Just like that. My third big thing, and as I mentioned back uh, covering the first episode, Littlefinger has already been all over this series, when we look at it in retrospect, of course. Playing the results is easy to see all of this, right? But Littlefinger is finally physically introduced in the series. Um, We've already heard his theme in the first episode. Now we meet him, and we also meet Varys and Maester Pycelle, the rest of the small council. Those guys are important. And I I wonder how we equate those guys now looking together or at them together from the difference in the way that we looked at them the first time. I didn't trust any of these three guys at all all because they seem just you know we learned little things about how sneaky they were Littlefinger was the easiest to pinpoint as a villain because I mean he even betrays Ned you know before this season is over then we find out that he's been lying about the whole Lannister thing by the time we get to season four then we you know find out that he's the guy behind the dagger in season seven um So, I mean, all of this, all of this layered lying and everything, it's pretty easy to build Littlefinger up as the creepy bad guy before we build up any of the other guys. But, you know, the way that they manipulated things with like Varys and Pycelle, they both had questionable backgrounds, too. My question is now is uh, Varys. Well, I'll save that for the questions. Um but I'll, I'll, I will pose this question because Littlefinger says something once Ned throws him up against the wall. He says, the Starks have quick tempers, slow minds. Is that accurate? 
do we think of Rob as being quick-tempered or slow-minded? Well, in the long run, it did get him. I mean, he fell for the trap at the Twins. But it was out of the need to do something. He was winning on the battlefield. It was once Tywin started taking the battlefield away from him that he started to lose. Um, Ned, quick temper, slow mind. Well, it did take him quite a while to put together that Joffrey's and, and Marcella and, and Tommen were not Robert's kids. Took him a little bit. What other Starks? I never think of Bran as a slow mind. If anything, his mind is quite fast to be able to keep up with billions of lives in the past. Um, you know, although he has had to lose himself, is he actually a Stark anymore? Um, I can see Sansa being a little gullible from time to time. Maybe her temper a little quick. Maybe. Arya always seemed to be very sharp-minded. Now, maybe she has a quick temper, but she seems to have a pretty sharp mind. So, I don't really know. I mean, it's kind of a mixed result. And I'm not exactly sure why Littlefinger made that observation. Um, was that to, to show us that, you know, he had been pulling this lie the whole time and he didn't think that they would ever find out? Maybe. Maybe that's why. And uh, with that question, let's get to some more questions here. Questions. Questions. Questions like, what the bleep is Jorah Mormont up to? I mean, he goes all in with Daenerys against her brother, Viserys. But then he runs off so that he can get that message off to Varys and Robert that Daenerys is pregnant. Is he just nudging up to Daenerys because he realizes that in order to stay alive to get home, he has to make sure that Drogo doesn't get mad at him? Maybe that's it. Maybe that's why he plays up to Daenerys over Viserys. And he never really sees Viserys as being the guy who's going to get him home or Daenerys as the person who's going to get him home because he's got Robert and Varys on the other side of the narrow sea promising him he'll be able to come home once the Targaryen kids are gone. But either way, I mean, that's some sliminess by Jorah, don't you think? Ooh, is that a hot take? Jorah Mormont is slimy? Because we don't really think of Jorah as slimy. We think of him as hopelessly in love, good old friend's own Jorah. But is he playing smart? He's keeping Viserys at bay because he doesn't want, he'd rather face Viserys as an enemy rather than Drogo. That seems pretty smart. And yet he's got this guy, Drogo, with an army that can get his queen, Khaleesi, that would be Danny to Westeros, which he could ride in with and maybe overthrow and maybe be able to stay in his world. Or he can sell him out down the river as he's riding off and, and doing at this moment when he finds out that she's pregnant. He can do that and keep his faith with Robert and Varys and get accepted back that way, even if the Targaryens don't make it. Kind of playing all the sides. That's pretty sneaky, Jorah. 
I never thought you were very smart. I take it back. So what do you think, though? Am I just making a mountain out of a molehill? Perhaps. Let me know. Matt's audioblog at gmail.com. M-A-T-T-S. Audioblog at gmail.com. Another question. I mean, it is obvious that Baelish played all of his cards in hopes of gaining power for himself. Kill John Aaron. Well, maybe I can convince Lysa into making me the Lord of the Eerie. Or at least the, the guy who's going to hold the fort at the Eerie until the son Robin is old enough. So there's one peg. But blame it on the Lannisters so that Ned and, and the Lannisters get into it. I mean, that's bold. On the other hand, uh, breaking up, it, might this also, given that John Aaron was foster father to both Ned and Robert, perhaps the idea from Littlefinger is, in fact, to create dissonance between Robert and the Lannisters as well. If by doing that, he basically sends the throne back into a civil war, which ends up happening, although not for the reasons that Littlefinger thought it would, but I think his whole hope is to just be able to seize power up behind all of the battling going on in a civil war. So, uh, objective achieved, although not necessarily by Littlefinger's play, but is that his goal? Perhaps. On the other hand, varies says he's doing everything for the realm. We keep hearing that over and over and over and over again. And I never really trusted that. I just, I just don't trust that. Yet, ever since him and Tyrion fled, he seems to really be, you know, Team Danny. On the other hand, we still have that thing as, how did Euron Greyjoy know where to find the fleet? How did the throne even know that they were coming? We haven't solved the mystery of who leaked that. Was it Varys? And if so, what is Varys' aim? If he's been playing for the realm, quote-unquote, for the realm this whole time, is that all just a crock? And if not a crock, then who is it that is selling Daenerys' stuff out? One final question, we just met very, so I hate to be killing him off already, but we know that Melisandre, if she is to be believed, has told him that he's going to die. He ain't making it to the end. How close to the end is questionable, but under what circumstances will his end come? Will it be related to the war against the White Walkers? The war for the dawn? Or will it be something related to Daenerys? Will it be something just weird? Those are all kinds of questions that I have no idea how to speculate on even and would not speculate because I wouldn't waste your time with silly speculations. So those are a couple of questions. Just a couple more little tidbits here. Tidbits. The talk of the Tarly boy at the Battle of Summerhall. That's Robert's first kill when him and his king's guards are all talking about their first kills. 
And he says it's a Tarly boy. So my immediate thought is, well, we know a Tarly. We know a Samwell Tarly. But if this was during Robert's Rebellion and the guy was a boy during that time, he'd have to be right around Robert's age. So would that be maybe a younger brother to Randall Tarly, Sam's father? Or maybe just a cousin? I don't know. But what that does prove is that the Tarleys were fighting for the Mad King. They were fighting against Robert, so therefore they were fighting for the Mad King, right? So if they were fighting for the Mad King, then it seems that the Tarleys stay true to the crown in place. They are not people who stir up stuff, at least not politically. Randall Tarley stayed with the crown, or at least the Tarley family stayed with the Mad King, even though Robert ended up winning. I guess they eventually had to bend the knee, and then everything went okay. But they stayed with the crown then, and they stayed with the crown by staying with uh, Cersei and Jaime when it came to deciding whether they were going to go against the Queen of Thorns and such. They ended up, of course, paying the price when the original king that they were true to his daughter came and said, hey, I'm a Targaryen. Weren't you loyal to Targaryens before? Don't you want to be loyal to Targaryens now? No? Okay, see ya. Yeah, burn, baby, burn. In fact, I will say that the only Tarly who's ever stirred anything up seems to be Samwell. And we all know what a coward he is, but yeah. Sam is the bleep disturber of the Tarly family. Can you believe it? He's shaking things up at the Citadel. He's shaking things up here and there. He's shaking things up at the wall. He's just shaking things up in his bubbling, cute kind of way. Gotta love it. Well, the rest of the Tarleys all toe the line. Toe the line. Not Samwell. That's why they don't like Sam. He'd rather read books than hunt deer. Good for you, Sam. Last little tidbit here, and then we'll get into three words, describing the episode in three words. Uh, But uh, last little bit here, Jamie. And uh, he says to Robert about when the whole idea of killing the Mad King, stabbing the Mad King in the back, which is why he got the nickname Kingslayer. We all know this. This is nothing you don't already know. But he says that the Mad King was saying the same thing when he killed him that he'd been saying for hours. Burn them all. And that is context for the story that he told Brienne about how the Mad King was going to light all the wildfire up underneath King's Landing and burn everybody rather than be defeated by Robert's or Tywin's army. And Jamie took matters into his own hands and saved maybe tens of thousands of lives for all we know. So, Wildfire in King's Landing, not good for Jamie, And it's probably why he's so horrified when he sees what Cersei did. And it's probably the, the, one of the last seeds that drops before Jamie and Cersei finally split ways, as they did at the end of Season 7. But burn them all is not something you want to say to Jamie Lannister. That's for sure. Three words is next. Three words. 
describing the episode in three words. Three little words. Oh, what I'd give for that wonderful phrase. To hear those three little words. Three words. Trying to describe an episode in three words. I started this back in, was it 2009? With my Keys to Lost podcast. By the way, you can find links to all of my old podcasts at mattsaudioblog.com. That's M-A-T-T-S audioblog.com and you can submit your own three word description of this episode simply by sending an email to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com same spelling mattsaudioblog at gmail.com or by sending a tweet to m-a-t-t-s-g-o-t blog that's mattsgot blog on twitter follow me if you like I don't do a whole lot except promote the show with that my personal account is actually at musical concepts if you want to follow me there why am i not getting to my three words right so we try to describe these episodes in three words and sometimes it's hard i mean sometimes you can just use a specific moment that you really liked out of the episode sometimes you can try and do a three-word synopsis sometimes you can just try to find three words of what you feel was most important in the episode and that's what i did this time i came up with wrong evidence mounting with every turn both Littlefinger and the storytellers are misleading us viewers down the path of Lannister evil and while you know the Lannisters certainly have their faults and in their own ways are evil some of them anyway all of them I mean Jamie pushed a kid out the window can't really forgive that can you don't really think so. Regardless of whether he's going to go fight for the right thing against the White Walkers or not, you still wonder if Jamie is um, excused for that deed. <laughs> or stabbing a king in the back. If it was Ned, up to Ned, nope, no way. As we heard in this episode, Ned was like, you know, you served when serving was safe. Uh, but anyway, wrong evidence mounting. And, and now Catelyn is convinced And as we know in the very next episode, she's going to act very rashly on being convinced in that way. And that's not a good thing at all. And I'm still kind of wondering to what end or to what result was Littlefinger hoping for when he started this little war between the Starks and the Lannisters. It it seems like okay yeah he can gain power especially by the killing of John Aaron but to blame the Lannisters uh, I guess it keeps everybody else off his back because it's more believable that way um, maybe as a result of the Civil War as I mentioned before he can uh, gain, slurp up more power but I just don't know in the end it just ended up getting him dead but he did a lot of damage before he went away right But anyway, those are my three words for this week. What are your three words? You have until midnight your time, wherever that is in the world, be it Russia, be it China, be it Australia, be it the United States, be it Europe. You have until midnight your time, wherever that is in the world, on June 2nd, 2018, to submit me your three words for this episode or any episode. We'll have a big three words thing in our feedback podcast, hopefully. If enough people, you know, it may not be big if only two people write in. But don't be one of the people left out. Get in on the fun. I like having fun with you people. I promise I won't make any comments. I'll just read them. 
All right. Coming up, brothel mates of the episode. Mates of the episode, the best couplings of the episode. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone that you adore can love. Brothelmates, another one that's a little complicated, but I always have fun with it. Doesn't have to be two people. Doesn't have to be a male and a female, obviously. Love is free. But like I said, it doesn't have to even be two people. It can be a person and a concept. It can be a person and an object. It can be two objects. I don't know. It can be two plot lines. I don't care. Whatever you feel like is the best coupling of the particular episode that we are watching. And for me... It's actually kind of a threesome. It's Arya and Bravos, or Arya and the Water Dance. You can physically see Arya being seduced by swordplay, the Water Dance. In Serial Pharrell, he makes it fun. I mean, who wouldn't be seduced by that? A little girl who's always wanted to have a sword and to learn how to swing it and everything, and now she's got this guy who's fun, teaching her how to play at swords. And not just play at swords. He's teaching her something that will ultimately become her signature style of fighting. And of course, the water dance has its origins in Bravos from Cyril Farrell, first sea lord of Bravos. I don't do Cyril Farrell. I don't do any impressions very good at all. But what is your best coupling of the week? Again, June 2nd, midnight your time, wherever you are in the world. June 2nd, 2018. That's your deadline to get me your brothel mates of the episode for this particular episode. Coming up, we've got my musical analysis. We're going to be looking at a theme and the way to use timbre to remind people of an environment, which is something that doesn't get done very often. I think it's pretty cool. We'll talk about that next. Take my heart and please don't break it Love was made for me and you For me and you For me and you For me and you I'll only run and hide Who can it be now? Who can it be? analysis of the music in HBO's Game of Thrones. So we know who our enemies are. I know they did it, Ned. The Lannisters in my bones, I know it. Littlefinger's right.
He still loves you. Does he? So there you go. That's a theme that we've heard a lot of. The interesting thing is, here we have it with Ned and Catelyn. It's the first time that we hear it. It's in this episode, Lord Snow. It's when they're saying goodbye. After this, we hear it with Catelyn and Brienne. And after that, we hear it mostly with Brienne. Sometimes Brienne with Jamie. Sometimes Brienne with Sansa. It's like the theme is being passed from person to person. First it's between Ned and Cat, then it's between Cat and Brienne, then it's between Brienne and whoever. And it gets used in lots of places because it's what I call, just as a general name, I call it the honor theme because it's about having honor, which is something that Cat and Ned definitely have. It's something that Cat and Brienne share. It is something that Brienne tries to uphold all throughout her days. But the actual name of it, it wasn't recorded on an official soundtrack. I don't think until season two, but it was called The Old Gods and the New. And when you go back and you think about that title, in season two, it was used because Brienne was swearing an oath and Catelyn was swearing an oath. They were swearing oaths to each other by The Old Gods and the New. But when you think about it in the context of this very scene, you have Ned, who represents the old gods. He's the one who goes to the weirwood tree. Remember in the very first episode when him and Catelyn were talking about how Catelyn is never comfortable being around that weirwood tree like Ned is. That's because he's old gods. She's new gods, the southern gods, the seven. She made that wreath that was in tribute to the seven gods. They're the new gods. The old gods are Ned's gods. The new gods are Catelyn's gods. And I just think that that is the most clever title ever. That you can have it be about the oath and about who these people are. So I'm taking this season two official soundtrack title, The Old Gods and the New, and I'm applying it here, and it works perfectly. Was that planned by Ramin? Doubtful. But, you know, it's still cool. We'll Tumblr it. That's what you do in the Tumblr generation. You try and find things that aren't really there. Anyway, it's a beautiful theme. And like I said, it's passed from person to person. And it grows in a way. Not The melody stays the same. The melody is this. This is what you heard. It has these long distances between the notes and not talking time-wise but the actual distance you have to travel a long way in the scale to get to the next note you're going way down and way up because honor is a hard thing to keep balanced right honor honor will shift you one way or the other and if you're truly following honor sometimes you might even have to do bad deeds to stay honorable and that's what the distance the shape of the melody is doing here it's showing how difficult it is to maintain this kind of balance of honor and not only that but it's also kind of sad because a person who lives the honorable life typically has to make some really tough decisions, which I'm sure are very sad. Both Ned and Catelyn have had to make tough decisions in their lives. Brienne has had to make tough decisions in her life. 
So these kind of things are all reflected in that kind of melody, that theme for honor. Now, the harmony hasn't changed a whole lot, but there has been different ways that Ramin has used this. We heard there, there was just little chords going with every top note. You know, as the, the notes of the melody, they drop down, and then when they come back up, there's a new set of harmony to go underneath it. That happens uh, in most of the treatments that Ramin does here. But there are a couple of treatments that he does where things change. First, uh, just to demonstrate, there's a little bit more elaboration on the harmony in this version from season two with Catelyn and Brienne swearing their oaths to each other. When the time comes, I will not hold you back. Then I am yours, my lady. I will shield your back and give my life for yours if it comes to that. I swear it by the old gods and the new. I vow that you shall always have a place in my home and at my table. But what I find very fun is that when Sansa is running from Winterfell and Bolton's men come up and they come up upon Theon and Sansa and Brienne comes riding in to the rescue, you hear this theme again and it's under all this really fast-moving string stuff, which generates excitement for the action, while at the same time maintaining that Brienne is upholding the honor and she's wanting to once again pledge herself to Sansa. Love this. Right here. This bloody woman. Now, I missed season six when it first came out. I took that year off. I just went books. But when I finally got to see this scene, I fist pumped so hard. And then they restated this theme again with Sansa when they made the pledges. And it was so delicate and everything. And it made me cry. And all of that's coming back to me when I'm watching this scene with Ned and Kat. It's just the way it all extends between the different people. It just makes me cry. And I'm pretty sure it's partially due to this theme. The fact that this theme is sad, it's weighing me down to see Sansa at her rope's end. And really, to now go back and look at this first scene and to see Ned and Kat at the end of their life together. Also sad. I love the way these kinds of things make me feel, though. And I have to say that it took this rewatch for me to realize that this theme came up this early. Kind of like it took me this rewatch to realize how quickly Littlefinger's melody comes in early. And incidentally, I want to talk about that real quickly. Chaos is a Ladder uh, from the season three soundtrack um, that we explored in the first episode, Winter is Coming, uh, when we did the musical analysis. There is a little bit of it playing while Jamie and Cersei were talking about Bran. And so, therefore, 
it's easy to understand why we first associated this theme with the Lannisters, because Lysa is telling Catelyn that it was the Lannisters that killed John Aaron, and the mystery of John Aaron, that music as Catelyn is announcing John Aaron's death to Ned, you know, it all makes sense. So Littlefinger probably isn't even in the picture for Ramin Javadi yet. It's probably not until he reads the third book, which I'm guessing is right before the third season that he scored. I, I sidebarred. Um, the other thing that Ramin did that was very interesting in this episode for me was I realized that he can use timbre, meaning a certain instrument or a certain sound to create environment, almost like a sound effect in a way. What I'm talking about is the bell sounds that are used up around the wall. So that clip is from where John is walking towards the elevator. And he's going to get in the elevator and he's going to ride to the top of the wall. And naturally, we hear those bells and everything. And then as the elevator goes up, we actually hear the wall theme. And I'm going to cover the wall theme in a later episode. Uh, it's just, it was so buried in the mix here. It was really kind of hard to hear in the mix. But this is the wall from the official season one soundtrack. So normally the bells would go into this piece. Or at least that's what everybody would think. Now you hear these bells and these drones and you think, okay, well, that's going to signify that we're going to get the wall theme. No, no, no. In fact, these bells and these kind of drones and even a high-pitched thing that's happening in some of these scenes is something that creates the environment of cold and snow. We'll hear it used in many places where the scene doesn't even have the wall theme. For instance, in season two, when John and everybody is at the Fist of the First Men, miles away from the wall, there's no need for a wall theme, but there is need for the bells to create the environment. Also, these bells help kind of generate a little bit of fear in a way. But first, here's that scene from season two where Corrin Halfhan is approaching. I don't think it worked. Wadlings! One blast is for Rangers returning. Wadlings is two blasts. She got to stand there, waiting, wondering. One blast for friends. Two for foes. So, no wall theme happening there, right? Just the bells. And it seems like, you know, it can create just as much of the environment as the little wind sound effect does. 
Now, how does that work? Why does the bell seem so obvious a choice, even though it's not an obvious choice at all? The hollowness. A bell is hollow. Cold has a feeling of emptiness in it. When we say someone is cold, we're generally referring to them emotionally as being empty. A bell is, let's face it, 90% empty. It's a great psychological approach to timbre. I love that. Bells are typically sine waves, very specifically shaped waveforms. The timbre creates an emptiness. Sine waves have very few overtones, and overtones are what give a sound its richness. Like my voice has a certain number of overtones, somebody else's voice may have more or less. And if you just think about the old phrase, for whom the bell tolls, or the bells are tolling, reminds us of death, and that's why we get the fear too. And just to prove to you, no wall theme happening there. Think at the end of season two, when Danny is at the house of the undying and she's having visions of being in King's Landing and seeing the throne covered in ice and snow. Not ash, people. Those of you who thought it was ash, it's not ash. It's not the dragons doing that. We know snow is already starting to fall and Danny's not anywhere close to being in King's Landing other than her little visit to the dragon pit. No, this is snow falling and it was the bells that told us so, if you needed to know. Just love that. That's fantastic. And again, where does Ramin come up with these ideas? He's just pretty smart. He's pretty smart. It's easy for me to go back and pinpoint them. I'm not sure that I could have came up with some of these ideas myself. They're just super fantastic creative ideas. And that's why we love Ramin Javadi's score of Game of Thrones so much. Back with some final thoughts in just a second. Wrapping up the Monday cast. Thanks again for joining me. Hope you found some stuff in here that you could at least tolerate. Maybe you even liked some of it. But if you didn't, feel free to write me and let me know. That's mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com. Or you can tweet me, mattsgotblog. That's M-A-T-T-S-G-O-T-blog. Please, please, please leave me a written review on whatever podcast app that you are getting this podcast from. It's the only way that I'm even going to make it into the search results for Game of Thrones. I really need your help. I'm not kidding. I need your help. You can help me. Good review, bad review. Uh, I'll take what I get, but please take the time to leave me a review. Thank you very much. And don't forget any feedback you have for me. Get it in by June 2nd, midnight, wherever you are in the world. We'll see you on Thursday. Take care.
can it be knocking at my door? 